Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Hellboy is the movie we watched this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, please give me your review of Hellboy. Eric, I grew up on one-liners, and this movie is <laughs> just... It takes me back to 2004. <laughs> this is the year that we graduated high school, which is an uh-huh. amazing time in life. A lot of transition. You feel yeah. angsty, but you have a lot of you know, power coming to you as the world acknowledges you as an adult. <laughs> Hellboy fit that time in life where you felt like Hellboy. And watching it today was just, it was fun. It was, you know, could, with everything, with all the trouble we had with Blade 2 and yeah. with how Guillermo del Toro described Blade 2, I think Hellboy is that movie that he was trying to describe. Well, I loved this movie. <laughs> I I got I got so much so much joy out of watching this movie. And I don't think I'd actually seen the entire thing all the way through before. I think I'd seen like bits and pieces of it on cable, but I don't think I'd ever sat down and watched the whole thing. But I kind of feel like if you were going to make a superhero movie for me or a comic book movie for me, like this is it. Like, it's got the occult, it's got Lovecraft, like, smeared all over it, it's got awesome practical effects, um, it's got really good action set pieces, it's got Rasputin, it's got, <laughs> it's got basically everything that I would want in, like, a fictional universe, and it's all balled up into this great two-hour movie. I really, really enjoyed it, and I was actually surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie. I... When going in, the only thing I truly remembered about this movie was when he's fighting one of the Shalaga guys. Now I can't think of the the name of the thing that kept returning. Samael. The Samael. Mm-hmm. When it stuck its tongue out and he grabbed it and he goes, second date, no <laughs> tongue. That's the only thing I remembered. But yeah. I've remembered that line for 12 years and I probably... <laughs> I don't know that I've seen this since I saw it in theaters because I think that it's, it's absolutely a cable movie. It's perfect for that. And you can just pick up and watch some scenes and you're good. Oh yeah. But it's a solid movie. And for being the first Guillermo del Toro movie over two hours, cause it's, I think two twelve. Yeah. Good, solid reason to go that long. It really works. I really enjoy. I mean, it, I almost want like a TV show of this. Like, it would be great to stretch this story out and maybe insert a couple other stories and just do like a full ten episode season or mini series of Hellboy. I I really like the character. I find the whole thing fascinating. And one of the things I really like about it is it never takes itself too seriously. Like, there's always the bowl of pancakes or the kittens <laughs> or. Uh, you know, throughout the movie, there's just so many things that, that keep it light, which is what you want in this kind of rip-roaring adventure movie. I think one of the things that I didn't love about Blade is that it took itself really seriously. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's one of the reasons why I like Norman Reedus' character so much in Blade, because he was kind of the tongue-in-cheek, like, isn't this all weird guy? But everybody is, isn't this all weird guy in this movie. Um, 
I mean, plot-wise, probably a little too much plot for one movie. Uh, and I could see, you know, there was some stuff on the forums. Uh, I'll get it to your dance, dances with Wookiees posted. He says, uh, watched it. Thought it was a lot of fun. Could definitely tell del Toro has a very unique style and set design to all of his movies. Just one thing though. So basically at the end of the movie, all Rasputin could do was just beg Hellboy to open the gate. Seems kind of strange that he would still have to ask politely for Hellboy to do him a favor to end the world. If Hellboy says no, which he does, all, then all of Rasputin's plans don't really matter at all. Just weird. And, you know, whatever. That was It is what it is. I feel like he gave him good bait and put it pushing um, Selma Blair out to the other dimension and saying that he had to go there to be with her. But, um, See, but there was a lot of plot in this movie. I think that we're really jumping to the end and we're jumping oh, yeah, we into are. the the meatiest part of my take uh-huh. but if we go back to uh one of del toro's big things one of his mm-hmm. favorite tropes is the notion of choice absolutely oh, this being the most important and yeah. to me rasputin's his faith in the elder gods and his vision of the future is very that fatalist he assumes that it's going to happen and that there is nothing that can be done about it and so his belief is that hellboy his instinct will take over he'll open the door because that's what he's supposed to do right where hellboy and the bureau of paranormal um specifically his father there's the tr- they make a big point out of the rosary of catholicism of christianity which is rooted which is a religion that deep philosophically is rooted in the notion of free will. And I think that's the really cool contrast that comes at the end because it's the notion of choice that Rasputin does not comp does not believe in. And that's what screws him in the end. Oh, that's really true actually. Yeah. And, and Del Toro said it over and over that choice is really the thing that interests him a lot about characters and giving them choices. Like, it goes all the way back to um, Kronos with the vampire grandpa. He made the choice to end it. When he could have lived forever, he made the choice to end it. Uh, and that that carries through all of his movies. There's a, there's a choice that comes up. And this one kind of hits you over the head with it. I mean, the last things that are said in the movie are what makes a man. The choices he makes... Or the choices he makes, not how he starts things, but how he decides to end them. It's all about choices, uh, and you know, it's kind of like a game, right? Like good games, or good. Levi and I, you, you and I both play board games a lot, and good board games give you the opportunity to make interesting choices throughout the board game. And there's something really interesting from a narrative perspective of giving people hard choices and then seeing what decisions they'll make, and. That seems to be at the core of just about everything that Del Toro does. It's it's a total Del Toroism, and maybe that's the problem. One of the problems with Hellboy is at no point does Hell sorry at in Blade was that Blade oh, never Blade. made a choice. Really, he just yeah. kept doing his thing. He never had to make a decision, except to carry that girl out to see the sunrise. Yeah, to have herself burn. He herself decided to, to agree to that suicide pact. Yeah. Um. I mean, Davy Mack, he says, I've seen Hellboy a couple times. It's a film I respect in the sense that I think it values character over spectacle, which I would say is totally true, which I appreciate, he says. Um, and 
it's got some great one-liners, but for whatever reason, it wasn't. I wasn't all that invested either time I saw it, which I think is an interesting thing because I do think that this movie kind of lulls in the middle. I think that the interactions between Hellboy and Selma Blair's character kind of, I don't know, they don't they don't necessarily. I mean, it, it leads to the end, which is good, but I do feel like this movie. That just the scene where Hellboy's on the rooftop after he's broken out of the bureau for the millionth time and he's eavesdropping on Liz and John on the park bench. I feel like that's where this movie kind of lulls after this huge action set piece in the middle of Act 2. There's like all this huge, huge action where they're down in the sewers and Abe Sapien's swimming around and the Samael are there and they're, you know, killing people and then like the robot dude pops up and he murders uh, Cole or Clay and like there's this huge action set piece and then there's this big lull right afterward and I think that I don't know I, I, I think that this movie's a little bit uneven and I think it just might be a little too much plot for one movie but th- having having said that I had such a good time watching this movie and it got to the point where I was like maybe there's too much plot but maybe the, the maybe they should have just stretched it out over uh, like a mini series, like if there was a Hellboy mini series, I would like it uh, probably a little bit. I don't know it might be a little more digestible to people. Ten episodes would be solid because you could do yeah. a monster of the week every other week, and then be following the major plot. You could do a lot of, you know, it's the bureau, and they could be doing a bunch of globe trotting, which would be fun. You get yeah. a lot, see, a, you get to see occult places around the world. You get to see the occult. The differences in a cult, uh, you uh-huh. know, they this one we see Scotland, and really all we see is the ruins of a church. Uh, yeah, and we see the museum and kind of what has come in, mm-hmm. and then we see Moscow, which is yep. some crazy castle that is much bigger on the inside than the outside. But you know, <laughs> to be able to to see Hellboy in Africa dealing with African occult. Yeah, uh, and like, then, yeah, just globetrotting. Yeah, I think that would be solid. And I yeah. think you would get... Part of the problem with, I think, with Hellboy and Liz was that we don't have the history. And so we just aren't as mm. invested in that relationship. And so we don't... And then the add in the confusion of, is John making a play for her? I don't know. I think, I think he is. Sort of. But he also seems to respect Hellboy and understand... Hellboy's he's trying to get out of her whether she really likes Hellboy and it yeah it just to me there was never the romance in there and I don't know that she necessarily I mean she's got a lot going on emotionally (laughs) I don't know that she needs the complication of a boyfriend or two but if you look (laughs) at things like um shit now I don't have a reference off the top of my head but you just need more time to build up to it to see kind of a more natural relationship you get it really fast and I just don't think it ever takes off but it's got it's it is played well in between the action set pieces so while it lulls it never I don't think it it doesn't ever drop off entirely which is nice yeah and I kind of love it when Hellboy escapes and uh, his What's his dad's name? <laughs> it's not really uh, Broom, Doctor Broom, or, or Professor Broom, or whatever. He was like, you know, he's a child and he'll always be a child. And then he's sitting up on a rooftop eating cookies with a child, <laughs> and they're like bonding. And it's like, of course, Hellboy, because it uh, you know connects with this kid on, on his level because they are both like immature children. Um, 
so I, it helps to illustrate that point. I don't know, man. I really like this movie, though. I, it it kind of blew me away, honestly, uh, in that I really think that we are entering the second phase of Guillermo del Toro's career. And I think that there is kind of a direct break between Blade Two and Hellboy. Um, in terms of quality, in terms of uh, action, for sure. I mean, it's easily the best action sequences of any Guillermo del Toro movie to date. Um, but I, I think that I think that this is going to be a new era. Next week, we're going to be watching Pan's Labyrinth, and I think that just the quality really uh, escalated, which I love. Yeah, he makes, um, and I love this world that he's built. And I you know it's not totally his world. I know Mike Mignola is the one who created Hellboy, but I love this world where it's like all of this mysticism is just thrown on top of each other. So you have like Lovecraftian elder gods, you have Rasputin, you have like tarot cards, you have Catholicism, just all mangled together in this big mystical soup, which I thought was really really interesting. It's a nice, and it's. It throws back to an Indiana Jones. It's a, oh, yeah. it's a much more exciting Indiana Jones where yeah. he's what if he were indestructible and even to the degree of his his quips are, you know, <laughs> when he acknowledges something's about to hurt. And yeah. that's funny, this but hurt. this is just what if Indiana Jones were indestructible and potentially the bringer of the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got so many uh, Indiana Jones vibes from this. And I think there are direct homages to Indiana Jones in this. I mean, of course, we're talking about Nazis and mysticism. So that's like Indiana Jones to a T. Um, but also things like when they're in Rasputin's tomb at the end of the movie and there's like that door closing and there's the scene of them sliding under the door and then moving their, <laughs> moving his tail back before it gets slammed down. I mean, it's, it's like going like, for the hat. Yeah, it's a direct... I feel like that's a direct homage to Indiana Jones. And I love it. I mean... I was on uh, I was cruising r slash movies on Reddit the other day, and one of the threads was what's like a good, propose a good double feature, and I feel like this movie and not Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade would be a really good double feature. Oh, you get the father and son vibe yeah. going. You get the father and son vibe. You still get the Nazis and the mysticism. Um, and you get the but you get the magical like eons old guy at the end and uh and you know immortality and all of this jazz like i feel like uh i feel like that i feel like the last crusade in this would be a great pairing Guillermo del Toro is a little bit like the son of George Lucas Oh yeah why just he's like George Lucas's weird creepy son because they have <laughs> i think a lot of similarities in Effects. They both love practical effects. Guillermo del Toro started with his own special effects company. Yeah. Um, they both have this world building that they love to do that they just cannot resist the urge. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not good. And they just keep going because they're doing it for themselves. And they're also just two heavy set dudes. there's something about them their enthusiasm uh and and their works that i feel that there is a there's a lineage there that you could you could pull from yeah and and this really like you know this movie 
is a direct homage to Mike Mignola and obviously his work. It's based off of Mike Mignola's work, but it also is so del Toro-y in so many ways. Like we have mystical otherworldly presences. We have monsters. We have Catholic, we have a ton of Catholic imagery. We have the, that pouring rain that we saw in like mimic, uh, that that just like sheets of rain coming down all the time. We have fascists. Uh, we have cosmic horror. (laughs) I like the fascist. That's a del Toroism. Dude, del Toro loves fascists. I mean, he loves, I think, I think fascism as a, (laughs) I don't think he loves fascists, but I think that fascism (laughs) as a ideal is very appealing to him in a, um, that's an antagonist. Yeah. And, you know, Liz commented at the very start of the movie, nobody feels bad about killing Nazis. No. Zero. They eat a grenade, all of them, right off the yeah. bat, completely unawares, and you're just like, ha, America, yes. And it's not even like the soldiers. It's like the scientists. <laughs> yes. They're the ones who get the first grenade. Um, But so, yeah, so many Del Toroisms. Probably my favorite Del Toroism that that is in this movie, though, that is now solidly Del Toroism, is glow sticks. <laughs> glow sticks, guys. We had glow sticks in Kronos. We had glow sticks in Mimic. No glow sticks in <laughs> Devil's Backbone, unfortunately. Um, but glow sticks very prominent in this movie as well. So glow sticks are now firmly Del Toroism. And he's been in three films. One thing I notice in the subway is that, and maybe movies use this more and I'm just not paying as close of attention, mm-hmm. but his choice of the warmth of light yeah. is dramatic and frequently different. He, yeah. We went from uh, Hellboy chasing the clockwork assassin, which was very blue, solidly blue in the, in the mm-hmm. uh, not the subway, but the sewer. And then we went to Abe in the water where, despite orange glow sticks, the water's super green. Oh, yeah. And then we go to the the clockwork workshop, and that's a solid warm orange. Mm-hmm. And all in the pace of probably 10 or 15 minutes, maybe. And it was just... Yeah. It's, it's fun. I like how he does it. It gives... For having sort of the same... It's all the same environment. It's all mm-hmm. in a sewer... But each, for, for as a video game reference, like each level of the sewer has a distinctly different light, so you can track where people are. Yeah, absolutely. And there's and and that blue and orange has has been, you know, carried out throughout his entire filmography. But but the green coming in in this one is really interesting. Um, but totally, yeah, his use of color and light. Every scene has a color to it. And, you know, big del Toroism is shooting at night and shooting at night really affords you that opportunity because you have so much artificial light coming in. You're able to really tint it however you want. He does a great job with that. Um, Let's get to let's let's do a recap. What do you say? Because we're, we're, we're 20 minutes in, but we haven't done a, uh, a, a, a recap of the entire movie. Oh, that's right. The plot. Yes. So. Basically, what happens in this movie is that Hellboy comes through a Nazi portal in 1945? Was that when he came through? I thought it was 42. Okay. Um, He comes through a Nazi portal, 
uh, and he's a baby, and then he gets raised by this professor, and he's used by the FBI to fight monsters, uh, and then Rasputin, who was actually the one who brought him back through the portal in 1945, returns in 2004 and tries to bring about the apocalypse through the use of these monstrous towns of hell known as Samael's. And it's up to Hellboy and the B, what is it, BPRD, to Bureau stop of Paranormal them. Research and Defense. Yes, it's up to them to stop him. Uh, all the while, um, Selma Blair's character Liz, who is a pyro, what what they call her? It was like She's, a neuro. She has pyrokinesis. She's a pyrokineticist. Yeah, and she can kind of control it, but she also every once in a while goes nuclear and just blows up <laughs> everything, including the entire mental hospital that she was staying at, without any repercussions. And I'm like, how do they explain that away? <laughs> she like so many people died in that, and it's like it's, it's obviously a bombing, um, <laughs> and they're just like, oh, well, let's just take her back to the underground layer. <laughs> that was a little curious, but so, she goes nuclear. She kills kids. Kids die in this movie. It's not her fault though, because Rasputin came in and gave her a dream of her the first time she went nuclear, which was because yes. some kids were picking on her. So some kids threw some rocks at her. We managed to get a creepy child in a Guillermo del Toro movie. Not a dead yes. creepy child. Well, no, kids die. There kids you die. go. Kids yep. die. She nukes some kids as yep. a child herself. So we get creepy yes. child and dead children together. Yes. The Del Toroism lives on. <laughs> you didn't think we'd get dead kids in this movie, but we got them, baby. Um, <laughs> that's the thing about this movie. It's like so many. When you watch all of these in sequence, there are so many Del Toroisms that become this movie that that become glaring because you're like, oh, he just keeps returning to these themes over and over. It's wrapped up in this Hellboy shell, but it's still the Del Toroism it's to the max baby i love it it makes me really excited actually so good that's what this is one of the reasons why i love watching these movies in sequence is you really get those flavors for directors um that carry out throughout the movies i love it um so anyway at the beginning of the movie we have rasputin opening the portal and did you notice levi i i didn't notice this the the first couple times i saw it because i'd seen the opening before when Rasputin puts on the giant glove, it basically is Hellboy's hand. Yes. And Liz really wanted to know what the meaning of his glove was and why yeah. Hellboy had a sa- the same hand. And I had no answers for her. I don't know. It makes me think that Hellboy is some kind of, like, some kind of, rep- like, a demonic representation of Rasputin. But see, that he's tied to him in a much stronger way than even Rasputin recognizes. I thought it was, at, you know, this is pro- this is a comic book thing for sure. I'm sure they explain that. I know that his hand has a name and it is the key. My assumption, my guess was that he has a similar hand because just like Hellboy's hand is a key, he needed that to reach into the portal to grab. I think Hellboy was already created in a sense. He was to exist mm. for the apocalypse, and Rasputin was kind of like, ha, yoink, I'm going to make this happen sooner. Yeah, and he had, so he had the hand 
and maybe you need maybe you need that maybe the hand mimicked the Hellboy hand it was like prophesized or something. I just thought it was really interesting how those two things correlate to one another. And nice on Guillermo del Toro. Don't try and explain it. Just yeah. keep just it's a little artifact in there. You catch it the second or third time you watch it. And you keep yeah, on they have, keeping on. They have that same big old hand. Maybe they just made like because that had to have been some kind of prosthetic, right? Hellboy's giant hand. No, I think Ron uh, Perlman's right arm is just oh. solid. Just ate some spinach and <laughs> that forearm got huge. Uh, maybe, the, but maybe they were like, "Hey, we built this awesome prosthetic. Let's build another one." Yeah, let's do it. Maybe that was the prototype. You know, they yeah. they just kind of built it up so it was big. And then like, well, now, okay, we're going to go make the real one. But we don't want to waste money. So let's throw some wires on this one. Ta-da. Yeah. Steampunk hand. Save is the first. <laughs> also, I love Jeffrey Tambor in this movie. He's so good. He's so He's good so- at playing hateable people. Like there's a there's a quiet desperation to him that <laughs> nobody takes him seriously and it carries through. Have you seen the Larry Sanders show? No. No, I haven't. So on Larry Sanders show, he plays this guy, I think his name's Hank, and he's like the sidekick. So Larry Sanders is the um he's a talk show host, much in the vein of like Johnny Carson. So there's like the sidekick on the couch, you know, like Andy Richter mm-hmm. or like Ed McMahon back in the day. And that guy is played by Jeffrey Tambor, and he's like so pathetic and sad <laughs> because nobody ever takes him seriously, and it really correlates to his character in Hellboy. Yeah, uh, something about his face because even by the end of the movie, of course, he's shouting "I'm in charge," which really undermines you. But he yeah. starts just exuding that sensation. Yeah. No, it's great. Uh, I love the I love him doing that too, being like, "I'm in charge," because it really echoes. Um, like one of my favorite things is when people are like, "I'm really good at business. I am great at business." And usually, if you're good at business, it's self evident. Like you're successful and <laughs> your businesses do well. It's usually the people who have to like keep saying I'm really good at business aren't very good at business. It's like some kind of reinforcing prophecy. And that, that carries across to a lot of things. It's like covering up your inadequacies through um, confidence. It's kind of like the Sung Su, uh, the Sung Su-ism of when you're weak, appear strong, and when you're strong, appear weak. But, I, but Jeffrey Tambor just does it so well because he's a huge dick, <laughs> and you never actually like him. And I mean, even at the end, when he kind of redeems himself by saving Hellboy ish, I feel like Hellboy could have gotten out of that. Um, he is uh, fairly indestructible. Yeah, I, I. But even then, it's like you still don't like him. And then they have the post credits joke. Did you watch through the post credits? Yeah. yeah, I caught that. Where he does he die? I don't know what happened. I don't there. remember Hellboy two very well. I, yeah, neither do I, I. I'm assuming he does not show back up. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, but I love this whole, like, hello. <laughs> and when, it, when, the, when like, the doors slam in Rasputin's you know, underground castle, he like goes and bangs on the doors, and he's like, hey, hey, like somebody's going to open the door <laughs> back up. Like, oh, sorry. I didn't know you were in there. I'm in the FBI. <laughs> it's kind of a great thing because this whole paranormal realm – is outside the really outside the jurisdiction of government, and yet they're trying to nose their way in 
through bureaucracy and but really it doesn't matter it's kind of this that's i think that's why i like hellboy so much is because he represents that chaotic nature and he's trying you know they're trying to reel him in via a governmental agency but he knows that that in this chaotic uh you know realm of of other dimensions and and other planets that, that there's there's no jurisdiction here. There's there's nothing. <laughs> there's nobody who's afraid of the government in in whatever dimension they're going into. Not to mention it's the FBI in Mo- operating in Moscow. Yeah, with just without <laughs> license. No. Yeah. No mention of how it, that is how that's going to fly with the Russian government. I did love how this movie has both Russians and Nazis in it, and. It was just cool, how, and it, and they're like uh, they're they're Russians that are you know longing for those old Cold War days. <laughs> so it's like it's a good callback to like James Bond and Indiana Jones <laughs> in some ways. Like that 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 monument scene where they where Rasputin goes in and, and gets the giant uh, the giant monument, the doorway. It really reminded me a lot of of uh goldeneye when they're like going through the relics of the cold war they're in and alec trevelyan and they're in that big statue graveyard that sort of thing everybody knew that anyway i really love that monument by the way the big stone the door to the apocalypse i wish it hadn't i wish it had been more dynamic than a laser into the sky but it was there's something about the the uh the relics of this movie of this universe really that are just really nice and creepy for being so inert i mean this is it's a stone slab Mm -hmm. but it's got runes and two holes on it and that for whatever reason to me was like oh yeah that thing's it's waiting it's like the monolith in 2001 a space odyssey it's there's not much to it but it manages to be imposing despite that yeah, and I love that. Also, the place where um, was that in Moldova? I think we went to Moldova too. That was was that the place where the where Rasputin got resurrected? Yes, yeah, in the in the snow. Yeah, with that just tube, the that etching tube was the... so cool. And, yeah, now he like comes out of the comes out of that thing all blood covered, almost like Blade Two. <laughs> We're gonna have to that start. Was really good. Yeah, this actually looked more like blood than the bath in Blade Two, though. <laughs> the bath in Blade yeah. Two was Kool Aid because it dripped mm-hmm. off him like water. This at least clung to Rasputin a little bit. <laughs> it coagulated a little bit. <laughs> no, I thought that was awesome. Um, and the practical effects in this movie are so good. Like, I'm really happy that they didn't do 100% CG Samuels. Yeah, like there were dudes in suits, and yeah, you could tell they were dudes in suits. But I like that. I like that they really creepy and gross. Well, and it's dudes in suits fighting Ron Perlman and fifty pounds of prosthetic makeup. Yeah, all. I mean, I'm trying to think. There's a few scenes where you kind of see the CG come through, and they're probably oh, the yeah. least strong in terms of act, uh, action, with the exception of. The big elder god battle at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't, was that an elder god? It seemed to go down uh, kind of easy. So. No, it was. I, that was definitely an elder god because it, because Rasputin said it was. He said you've awakened a god, and he said every time that he passes into the other realm and is resurrected, a little bit more of the god comes with him. 
So I, that, I think that definitely was an Elder God. It's kind of a weak sauce Elder God if a couple of grenades. I don't know, man. Do you and I have killed Cthulhu with a couple of shotguns and a barrel of dynamite? <laughs> that is not, I can't. Have we ever beaten one in a straight fight? Yes, we have. We did one. Was it actually Cthulhu? It, I don't think it was Cthulhu, but I think it was like Azathoth or something. We're talking about a board game, yeah, by the way. Yeah, board game, listeners. Arkham I'm Horror. Sorry. This pretty good. A, We've played too much. <laughs> way too much. <laughs> but that's what there's makes this game. movie so... I think I know. that Guillermo del Toro... Because when this came out, I think nerd culture had not reached its pinnacle. I no, think that no, this yeah. will be looked on in time as... Uh, not a cult classic, but what's the next step down from a cult classic? No, I know exactly what you're saying here. Like, I... I was kind of blown away with this movie in in the same way that I was blown away with like Guardians of the Galaxy. When I when I think about comic book movies, I'm going to have to rank Hellboy fairly high on that list. And uh, you know, I'm totally biased here because it appeals to my sensibilities. So, Levi and I were talking about this board game. It's called Arkham Horror, and it's a really difficult board game, but it's about it's set in the 1920s, and you just play like a normal dude, like a like you you could be a librarian or a or a newspaper reporter or whatever, and you go around the board, and all of these otherworldly monsters appear, and you have to defeat them, and then at the end, an elder god comes out, and you have to try to defeat the elder god. It's an incredibly difficult game, and most of the time, you're going to lose spectacularly. You're going to get mangled by a by a Mego, or you're going to get chased down by a Hound of Tindalus. And then if you make it to the end, you're going to get devoured by an Elder God. And it's amazing. And that's basically what this movie is. It's That is this movie. I mean, the Samuel are basically Hounds of Tindalus. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, Elder God, the, the cosmic horror at the end who's trying to come through is basically like Azathoth, trying to come through with multiple eyeballs, you know, poking out. And and this this Lovecraftian theme has definitely blown up, especially in the nerd sphere in recent years. Uh, most recently, Hearthstone is releasing it's a, it's an online card game, and it's releasing a new pack of cards. It's completely based off of Lovecraftian lore. Uh, it's everywhere now. But back in two thousand four, like you were saying, Levi, this Lovecraftian stuff was definitely not as well known as it is today. And I feel like if this movie with Nothing but updated CGI came out today. I feel like the buzz would be just a little bit bigger. Guillermo del Toro can complete his transition to George Lucas by remastering and re-releasing his film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and we'll get to a sequel. We'll get to sequel talk here because I definitely want to talk sequels. But let's also talk about Abe Sapien. Oh, because Abe Sapien is awesome. Such a good character. The his yeah. costume was fantastic. The guy that amazing is physically in the suit, not the same. The voice is David Hyde Pierce, yes, who, which I didn't recognize, but Liz picked up on because she watches Frasier too much. Yeah. Um, but the guy in the suit shows up again in uh, Pan's Labyrinth. And I'll- yeah, Doug Jones, he's actually... So Doug Jones is kind of like the poor man's Andy Serkis at this point. <laughs> he is. I mean, Doug Jones, is, is he's, a, he's really a performance artist. Um. And he's kind of the big news that just got announced is that he's coming out. Uh, he's going to be doing a Nosferatu movie. Ooh. But he is. I mean, Andy Serkis kind of blew up a little bit bigger because he's in bigger movies. I mean, specifically, uh, of course, Lord of the Rings playing Gollum. But Doug Jones is very similarly like a like a performance capture artist and does an amazing job. 
Um, such an amazing job in this movie, in fact, that David Hyde Pierce, while he did the voice for Abe Sapien, went un- decided to go uncredited be- in order, like in homage to the performance that Doug Jones had. That's why he, because I had to really scroll down in the credits. I was yeah. telling Liz that it wasn't him. It couldn't be Niles because he wasn't showing up. Yeah. In the cre- it wasn't until I got to the bottom where it said uncredited that I was blown away that he would pass up on that. That's super cool that that's his reasoning. I mean, it's cool for Doug Jones, and it's also a cool thing for David Hyde Pierce to do. I mean, he got the he got the money, I assume. <laughs> so he got what he needed out of it, but I think it's really nice. And actually, in spoiler alert, but in Hellboy Two, uh, Doug Jones does both the performance and the voice. Oh, so his voice is going to be a little different coming up. <laughs> um, but he's just really cool because um, I've always like when you talk about the Universal monsters, you know, the Universal Studios monsters. The creature from the Black Lagoon has always been like the most intriguing one to me. Maybe because he's more, the most otherworldly. Maybe it's because he's pretty much the most Lovecraftian one. But I, I just love the creature from the Black Lagoon, and that's basically what Abe Sapien is: is a creature from the Black Lagoon meets uh, Abraham Lincoln. You know, Abraham Lincoln <laughs> meets Einstein meets meets Stephen Hawking meets <laughs> meets a, a, a complete genius meets. Um, can't think of any psychics right now. Meets the psychics friends at that work. But he's such a good character, and I love it. And I really like how they introduce all of these characters. Like, there's re- some really masterful storytelling in this movie, which I, which I want to point out. But it's also something that really impressed me as kind of a growth mechanism for Guillermo del Toro. Because it's kind of it was we got to admit it was a head scratcher going from Devil's Backbone to Blade Two. The 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 difference in quality between those two films is so striking, and this one you know has those action sensibilities of Blade Two, but also brings in those expert storytelling techniques that Guillermo del Toro employed in The Devil's Backbone. But one of them is, of course, the enter- everyman entering the strange world to introduce us to it, and John, uh, you know, coming to uh, what is it? BRP BRP BPRD BPRD, and we us being introduced to that place through John's eyes allows us to have the everyman walk us through this strange world and we get to experience it in a in a much uh you know we get to ease into it the way that he does um which is a great technique and it's you know it's obviously something that's used over and over again but it it allows us to enter this weird weird world uh but not feel like we're getting in over our heads which i thought was cool he Plays, he's I recognize him from Man in the High Castle, which is the only oh. thing that I really know him from. Uh, Did you watch that show all the way through? I haven't seen it all the way through. I'm really close. I only watched the pilot, and I wasn't thrilled. It gets better, but I don't know that it's going to really tickle your fancy anymore. The, the pilot for me was intriguing enough, and mostly because of the yeah. setting. So, But uh, yeah, I really liked his you know we're talking about chemistry between liz and hellboy but john and hellboy is a really nice from the indifference Mm -hmm. at the start to hellboy kind of liking him because he got liz back to hellboy jealous of him because of liz and then in the end kind of accepting him as a as a friend for holding his own um and really that seeing that relationship in the end where 
he John is still so far out of his league. The fact that Hellboy can yeah. whisper into Liz's ear a threat <laughs> to the other side of death and bring her yeah. back. Yeah. I mean, it helps to we get to see both sides. We get to see John outgunned in terms of strength and agility. But at the mm-hmm. same time, we see that Hellboy's maturity level isn't past a teenager because of how he can act around John. And that's when John yeah. has the advantage on Hellboy. Well, in some ways, Hellboy doesn't have any empathy. And, and I think that kind of is bred from the idea that he is a monster. So nobody truly understands him. And, and because of that, he's walled himself off to the world. But John kind of is empathy he's got empathy in spades and he's out there to reach out to people and connect with people. So they're a really good dichotomy in that way, because in some ways Hellboy is the epitome of selfishness and John is the epitome of selflessness. You know, John's giving up his life to come work here. He's, it's not like he's going to go home and join a softball league or anything. (laughs) And if he's seen the rate at which agents turn over. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I love it that agents die in this movie. It raises the stakes so much. This? Like, going into this movie, and if you were going to this movie not knowing if there was a sequel, there are so much up in the air. The stakes are high the entire time because people fucking die a lot, which is cool. Yeah, especially when, is it Clay? When that agent, yeah, Clay. when he bites it, you're like, oh, that guy meant oh, something. Yeah. And he gets brutally murdered, dude. That that repeated stab. Yeah, he gets a prison shanking. Yeah, I mean, uh, before we, I want to get to that scene, but before we do, another thing that I really like is they had the flashback of Rasputin resurrecting the Samael out of the salt of the tears of the angels. And they, they did that in a flashback after Hellboy had the fight with the Samael. And I felt like that was a really effective storytelling technique because, once again, it allows us as the viewer to go on a journey into the unknown with. Hellboy and with John and so after we get introduced to John we go to the museum and then they you know we hear that the Samael is in the room and Abe Sapien says you know it's a it's a giant awful deity and uh it's really bad and then we get to go in there and kind of go through that discovery process with Hellboy and them if they would have started off with Rasputin just resurrecting the thing and then gone to that scene it would have taken all the mystery out of it so I like that they use that as a flashback. And it also it serves as a character development device because it shows how Abe Sapien can you can see the future and the past. So it's just a really effective flash. It's like a, a really effective flashback, which I thought was a- admirable. And Abe works really well as a story foil because if you consider that Liz is just a nuclear bomb that you just slap and run, and Hellboy, yeah. you just apply pressure to a given point... Abe, even in the water, was not a fighting chance no. against the, the Samael, which makes him frail but powerful because of his ability yeah. to analyze essentially the plot. Uh-huh. And they use it. They don't abuse it. It really is effective. Yeah. I mean, Levi, and I, Levi you and I play a Dungeons & Dragons game, a monthly Dungeons & Dragons game. And in that game, I'm a, I'm a halfling wizard. Which means that I am, I, I am not a fighter, <laughs> but I can but I can be really valuable in a fight. 
So I feel like Abe is the same way. Like you understand why he needs to be there because he can see the past, see the future. He can touch a door and tell you what's on the other side of it. Very, very effective. But he's not the type of guy who's going to be able to take too many hits. And he gets he gets really effed up by the Samael, and um, I think he only you know comes out of that because he's a superior swimmer. Uh, but uh, but he, yeah, he's not going to be a fighter. But you need him there. Because he's going to help you out so much. I was actually really surprised that they didn't bring him with them to Moscow. Too cold. I guess he was still recovering. Yes. Yeah, he doesn't get out. He's still in the chess thing when he's talking to Liz about about Hellboy and the journey. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't think anything could have... I mean, Maybe they would have found Rasputin's tomb faster, but I don't think he would have added too much to that and it probably would have been put in a lot of danger i was just kind of surprised you don't even really think about it until until you're like oh abe isn't with them um but that's also an interesting thing here because they always go out in pairs so the first time it's it's abe and hellboy and the second time it's liz and hellboy um but yeah that second act is so good to me because those agents get wrecked (laughs) and it's such a great kind of uh you know, middle of the road challenge for this team that shows how outgunned they are and what a giant force they're up against. I really like this movie because unlike, uh, I could point at some recent superhero movies, but there's kind of like, especially in the Marvel cinematic universe. Now it's like, this is the bad guy. These are the bad things. And, but you never really feel like the heroes are outgunned. Um, like you're not going to watch the Avengers two and be like, like once the vision shows up in Avengers two, you're like, Oh, he's just going to destroy everything. Like, <laughs> yeah, the power, the power know, creep that occurs yeah. within the story is yeah. very difficult. Yeah. Like, and that's kind of a problem that I'm having with captain America civil war because the vision could just disintegrate everybody with his mind. Yeah. But, but he's not going to, we'll get to that. <laughs> and I'm sure they'll have a perfectly, reasonable plot device to yeah. <laughs> explain that away. <laughs> but that's kind of the thing I love about this is that these guys, the the people that they're fighting against, the Samael and Rasputin are very formidable enemies. And it seems like they have the upper hand the whole time. That makes for a very interesting villain. If the villain has the upper hand the entire time, it makes it really interesting. That second fight... um where the agents get killed and Abe Sapien almost gets killed and, you know, Hellboy kills one of the <laughs> Samuel, but, like, just barely, it really exhibits that these guys are up against something really big, really bad, and really hard, and they're, they're it's going to be a huge uphill battle to win, and that makes it very compelling to watch. Like, make your make your bad guys as bad as they can possibly be. Um, Let's... And make your heroes bad too. It's it goes back to that Tarantinoism. Bad people are interesting. So if you make your heroes bad and your bad guys worse, it makes for a really interesting, <laughs> interesting matchup. It's it's really similar to Inglorious Bastards, where in this instance, the villain is a step ahead and generally more intelligent yep. than the good guys. Hellboy yep. just punches things a lot and. As a viewer, that's fun to watch, but now you don't have to deal with, I'm watching him punch things and outthink things. He's being outsmarted, which is enjoyable to watch people be clever, but then mm-hmm. you also get the action because that is 
actually the the protagonist you're following is the the hammer in this instance yeah and the villain keeps <laughs> moving the nail on them that's that's what makes good bond villains that's what made oh yeah uh, they i've read i've been reading i've been following this stuff for the next kingsman and one mm-hmm. of the the hesitancies is that a word one yep. of the reasons that the the writers have been hesitant is that they want a solid villain because that is the speech that Colin Firth and Samuel Jackson have about what makes a Bond movie was really their notion of what made Bond movies. And it was the villain. Yeah, it is. I mean, the villain, that's what you always remember about it, about the Bond. I'm a huge James Bond film fan. And yeah, that's, that's what you identify every movie with. You're like, oh yeah, like Golden, you know, Goldfinger is about Goldfinger, uh, <laughs> you know, um, absolutely. And also, Bond movies are um, are also uh, you know really marked by their henchmen, just as you said. And in this movie, the Carl, what's his name, Carl Ruprecht Cronenen. <laughs> That guy is so creepy. Oh, God. Doesn't have eyelids, has sand for blood, <laughs> is a crazy martial artist, clockwork robot creep, Nazi. He's such a good henchman. And I just loved, I, I love the way that the end of the movie is set up because Hellboy goes in he and he has to like go through the progression. He kills the Samael. Then he has to go kill this Carl guy. Is that his name, Carl? Yeah. <laughs> then he has to go kill Rasputin, and then he has to go kill an Elder God. It's like an awesome progression of, like, you just got to keep on leveling up and moving through the battle till you get to the very, very end. Um, I thought it was so so compelling. But, yeah, this henchman is so fucking cool. Yeah. the It's a definite when the mask is off and you see his face, yeah. that's Del Toro probably sketched that when he was like eight and has just held on to that little drawing waiting for an excuse to make such a nightmare come true or mike mignola drew it but either way (laughs) those guys deserve each other they both write great stuff and they're crazy and when he's laying on the table and he like sits up after being resurrected by Rasputin, he's got the plastic sheet over his head. <laughs> so creepy. Oh, so good. I mean, not good. I mean, the guy's a Nazi. I'm not telling, saying he's a good guy. I'm saying he's a really effective henchman. Yeah. Um. So interesting. Uh. Yeah, and I love how the agents are basically red shirts in this movie. Like, they just are expendable. <laughs> they get killed all the time. Very Lovecraftian in that sense. I always... I think it's. Ins- I thought I came up with this separately, but it could be inspired by this movie. This is why I, this movie tells me why I have a problem with uh, X Files oh. because they go up through th- against the same horse. They should be dead every episode because <laughs> that's what happens to Asians in this movie. It's just you're never prepared for this stuff. Right. You have no recourse for <laughs> to deal with this power level. Yeah. So, and I do have a suggestion for the listeners. Um, as you could tell, Levi and I are huge nerds, and we're especially huge Lovecraftian nerds. And we love Arkham Horror. We love Dungeons and Dragons. If you want to play Hellboy, the RPG, the pen and paper RPG, play Call of Cthulhu. Because it basically is like you, you have to creep around 
And if you ever actually try to fight one of these monsters, you get killed almost immediately. And it really is. Like, yeah, you're going to walk into a room with a Samael and you're going to walk out? I don't think so, dude. Those things are trained killing machines. Um, and they have, have cra- this, they have crazy have tentacle this. dreads. Same movie, same movement as they do in this movie. You need to go in with a sling of grenades and yeah. set them off all at once. That is your only yep. option. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and let's. I, there's one more character that I'd love to talk about in this movie. Uh, there's two actually, but but the first one here is Ivan. <laughs> I, yes, I think Ivan is so hilarious and he's only in the movie for like two minutes but it's so funny he steals the show yeah he's it's such a great like great little one-off character and i would love to see more of these types of characters in movies because they're always the ones that i love it's like uh who's a co-pilot for lando calrissian in return of the jedi i don't know that dude's names but the guy with the he's got the jowls yeah like that guy, <laughs> like everybody loves that guy. He's only in the scene. The only his only line in the movie is <laughs> with the Death Star. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, but but yeah, like I love Ivan, and it's so many great little moments of comic relief while they enter this basically <laughs> basically the death chamber of this underground tunnel. Um, like I love it when Hellboy goes, hold on to this guy with you. He's so negative. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he falls to his death, he says, "I, I should have stayed dead." <laughs> so good, man. Ivan is awesome. The Ivan that reminds me of two things. If for listeners, if you haven't ever seen Mike Mignola's work, just go Google mm. him. He has mm-hmm. such a distinct style. And there were two shots in this movie that I was madly in love with the first was the raising of ivan when he's sitting over the over the grave standing on top of the coffin and there's the snow coming in from the top and there's so much light and so much dark from below and just the massive hellboy it was very much because mike mignola's work is super contrasty i mean you really get a color or black it feels like mm-hmm. half of his pages are black and he does it. He knows just how to do it so that it doesn't feel like it's washed out. Mm-hmm. There was that. And then when Hellboy is telling Liz what he said and you can't even see his, his eyes are in shadow and all you really see are kind of the highlights in red. And then when it looks at Liz and you see her features very heavily contrasted and then darkness around them, very good translation. And he doesn't try and do the whole movie. And this isn't 300 uh, or Sin City. He yeah. really just pays homage to Mignola throughout the movie. And it's superb yeah. each time he does it. Yeah, I and you know speaking that was the other character I want to talk about was Liz and particularly Sema Blair's uh, performance because I've I've been reading online some people hate her performance in this movie, but I think her performance is great because she has to be deadpan she has to keep her emotions in check at all times because she might go nuclear and blow up blow up everything so I really like that she's so deadpan all the time um, because. Living a life 
it, I felt, felt like it was very, very reflective of her character. She either destroys everything around her and probably everything that she loves in many cases, or she, uh, or she has to, you know, walk around completely monotone, be, uh, you know, to prevent herself from doing that. I thought that was really, really effective, and I thought she did a great job in the movie. Yeah, this is not Mark Ruffalo's Hulk. Yeah. Which he basically <laughs> has control over, which is total bullshit. Uh-huh. But when at towards the end, when she tells John to hit her, Liz looked at me and goes, "She's not always angry." Like as a <laughs> she, she doesn't control her power. I'm like, no, this is for real. Like yeah. she only has the nuclear option, and, yeah. <laughs> and that's cool because that is a she's super powerful. But she has a limit, and that is her ability to control it is almost yeah. zilch. And that's what you would love to see from the Hulk. Yeah, I think that's an actual. That's actually how the Hulk works. Yeah, <laughs> that is the Hulk. I th- yeah, that's re- that's really interesting. And I thought she did great. I, th- I really thought she did a great job. And I'm excited to see her again in Hellboy Two. And I guess finally, we never talked about Hellboy. But Ron Perlman, born for this role. Absolutely. He's got the face for it. He's got the voice for it. He's got the <laughs> stature for it. He's got the demeanor. Like, if anybody was born for a role, I feel like it was Ron Perlman for Hellboy. I assume this is his attitude all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be surprised. I mean, it was like a match made in heaven that uh, Guillermo del Toro is such a huge fan of Mark of Mike Mignola's work, and he's you know such a huge fan and collaborator from the very beginning with Ron Perlman. Uh, it, it's it's exactly he's exactly who you want him to be in this movie. He does such an amazing job. Um, so what do you think, man? Because there's there's been a lot of talk, there's been a lot of chatter for Hellboy three, and I'm after watching Hellboy again, I'm all for Hellboy three. It's been. 12 years since this movie came out and Rob Perlman's going to be pretty old at this point, <laughs> but I, I, I love this world and I'd love to return to it one more time after Hellboy two time for the, is Constantine also dark horse comics? Uh, no, uh, Constantine's DC. I'm trying to think. So who has the rights to Hellboy? Uh, I, I don't know. Cause that would be my, I would love Ron Perlman born for the role, but like all great roles at some point you got to do somebody different. I think they HBO original, not original, but HBO with Guillermo del Toro Mm. helming and just Mm. pick it up, do a season. That would be my dream. And I'm sure he'll come out in a couple months. He'll say that. And then after a year, it'll be not, not maybe, (laughs) you know, it's, we're having some issues and then, yeah, I don't know. Then he picks up Pacific Rim six and just. <laughs> well, I he's, think... al- he's already not directing Pacific Rim two, but it is in production. So, I would love to see him do a third Hellboy. Yeah, I think with all of the prosthetics, Ron Perlman could easily keep doing Hellboy. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of stories, I'm sure, in that universe to tell. So I wouldn't be surprised. Guillermo del Toro loves the material so much; it's. I'm sure Hellboy 3 will happen. It's just a matter of timing. I mean, Brad Perlman's 66. Is he really? Yeah. So he's pretty old. He was in his 50s, though, when he did this. Yeah. And it worked. It worked fine. See, he's um, got four years left. 70 is really where exercise, There's nothing. it doesn't <laughs> do enough to maintain your youth. I think <laughs> they've got four years to get one more out. 
finish the trilogy. Well, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. is fifty-one, and he's going th- going in his umpteenth turn as Iron Man. Yeah, but his his and system also has to be. I mean, inside <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., he's like seventy-five. I can't imagine he's got much more left in him. Um, I want to see how old old Mark Ruffalo. Now we're just playing how old are people. <laughs> Mark Ruffalo is forty eight, so he's not that old. But yeah, he's got plenty of time. I don't. I, I'm all for it. Apparently, it's been announced. If you go on the IMDb page, Hellboy three has been announced. But God, <laughs> I feel like I just really love Del Toro in this world. I love him in the Hellboy world because it does. It marks all of his great sensibilities as a director. All the Del Toroisms fit like a glove. The universe is really interesting, and just all together, it's really good. I mean, if if they did ditch Perlman and say went for an HBO uh, mini series or something, or an FX series on Hellboy, who do you think should play Hellboy if it's not going to be Ron Perlman? Wow, that's uh, trying to think. You could probably. What's Vin Diesel up to these days? Ooh, he's the right size. He, that's interesting. His ad, his acting style, I don't know, fits as well. I don't. I think he could pull it off. I think that's a good choice, Levi. He did a great job as Groot. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's got kind of the imposing. Hmm, I kind of like that. I don't. He might be a little too. I don't really think of him as a funny guy. Yeah, like he's he doesn't quite have the deadpan thing down so i'm afraid that some of the humor would be lost but i i like that i think that's a strong choice i'm trying to think of who is large in stature oh man and on the younger side he might be too old let's see how old he is he's 43 he's perfect idris elba as hellboy oh man oh that would be idris elba is 43 yeah he's only 43 that guy he'd be the perfect hellboy yeah, he'd be great. He'd be awesome as Hellboy. He's got like the whole thing. He's he's like got the formidable thing. He's got the the dark side. He's got the yeah. He can brood um, when he needs got, to. But he's got he's got like the tongue in cheek. Like he can definitely deal out the one liners. Who he'd be good. I mean, that's why people think he'd make a great Bond. Yeah, and there I think a lot in common with the quipping and the and the attitude of James Bond and Hellboy. I think I think Idris Silva would be really good. Yeah, as Hellboy. All right. Well, that's enough of that. <laughs> Speculating on things that will never be made. But uh, but yeah, that was a fun. It was a really fun rip roar ride, and I'm really excited to enter uh, to enter Pan's Labyrinth and watch that movie for the first time for me. Man, that's gonna so, be so much fun. I'm excited. And uh, and then we got Hellboy 2 coming up after that. I really feel like we're in phase two of Guillermo del Toro's career. And I'm so excited now each week for all, each of these movies. I can't say I was super excited for Mimic and, and Blade 2, but I'm really <laughs> excited uh, going into this upcoming slate. So uh, please, listener, reach out to us on the forums, forums.baldmove.com. We'll have a forum up there for... Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, because that's what we'll be talking about next week. You can also send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to read your emails on the air. Until next week with Pan's Labyrinth, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.